You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of The Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to The Batuta Advocate radio show recording down in downtown Batuta here at the uh, Old City District, Budgie Smuggler Studios. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, editor of The Batuta Advocate, and of course, Errol Parker, editor at large. How are you, Errol? Good, mate. Beautiful day up here in the Channel Country. Crystal clear skies. Just had a drop of rain. Wildflowers will be en route. Yeah, it's a good time of the year. It's about to get very hot, so take it in. Take it in while you can. And today's guest is beaming live uh, straight out of the Wollongong hinterland, I guess you could call it, down there in uh, <laughs> in the southern highlands of Sydney, southern highlands of New South Wales. Jimmy Barnes, thank you for joining us. How are you, gentlemen? Very good as always. Nice, nice to see you. Nice to see you got the internet out there. Yeah, yeah. The satellite, Skymaster inter- satellite. The interweb. Yeah. We've been trying to get uh, Bardsey on for a while on, on the Batuta Advocate radio show, and like a lot of the big guests we've been getting lately, COVID's been great for that because, as we see, <laughs> Bardsey knows how to use a Zoom. He can do it from his living room. And, no, uh, well, actually, to tell you the truth, one of the kids had to come set it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to own up to it straight away, you know? <laughs> yeah. You've been doing a fair bit of uh, music at home. We've seen... Yeah, yeah. Me and the missus. Jane decided seven months ago when the whole when the whole place closed down that she's going to learn guitar. Yeah. And she's been sitting in there churning, you know, practicing for hours every day and just churning that song. So it's great. Every night we get out, you know, we're just doing it very, very amateur hour just with an iPhone. That's surprising how good it sounds. Yeah, yeah. Deep in the lockdown as well, that started too. So I mean, when everyone was trying to find yeah. ways to kill time, that we were getting videos coming out of the the Barnes household where. The whole family was singing. You had the yeah, well, that's you know, there's no shortage of bloody entertainers, and you know, all the kids all sing, the grandkids sing. It's good. They all play something, so it's good. Yeah. <laughs> now tell us, you've just released a book. I mean, this is a quick turnaround. You've been busy in COVID. And yeah. You've also played a well, few gigs. Yeah, I've done a couple of gigs, but I'm, you know, listen, I've I've been sort of writing the last four years. I went up before I wrote the first couple of books, and I just didn't stop. I just sort of kept writing little bits and pieces, mm-hmm. and I decided late last year that I was going to you know write some short stories and i had a couple of ideas already down and my plan was i was going to go and take a bloody holiday because i I'd, I'd just worked toured for about four years and and write a book while we traveled but of course we we left here got to thailand where my wife's from and uh, the whole world sort of shut down around us and we had to turn around and come back which was great because you know i've got to tell you the hinterland of Wollongong is looking pretty bloody good at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Bit of rain. <laughs> so, what made you? Um, a bit of rain cold. What made you get into writing so prolifically? Like, um, obviously, you've written a lot of good songs, a lot of songs. It's one thing to write an album; it's another thing to write thousands of pages of, of um. You know, yeah. You know what? I just it's one of the. It's one of those things where the first couple of books really it was like, buddy, you know it was like therapy for me I, I it was a whole pile of stuff that i had to get out and whether i just wrote it down and then burnt it you know it was just yeah. to get it out for myself and after i wrote it out i started writing and i realized that people some people were actually getting something from it and pe- people liked it and i just enjoyed the process and i bloody you know i um you know i, I like telling a story i like telling a, you know yarn anyway so uh you know just sitting at the computer and you know i, the, I remember nearly everything it's surprising when you think about what i've done to myself but uh, but i remember most things and to sit there and try and focus on it and then 
fill in the gaps is a lot of fun anyway. You know, just, you know, sitting there trying to write, you know, write like Don Walker. If I'm doing a conversation with Don Walker, of course I don't remember what he said word for word, but I know exactly how he speaks with that sort of North Queensland drawl. And, uh, and we, you know, I can fill in the, the gaps and make, and make it fun. So it's sort of, it's entertaining for me and it's just, you know, it's just sort of something I've really great. I'm just going to keep doing it. I really yeah. enjoy it. It is interesting to be able to view it that way where it's, it's your memoirs or it's your stories and you, this is how I think it went down. It's uh, it's great to be yeah, able well, to share that's that what story. I mean, um, that's what a memoir is, you know. It's your story from your perspective and what you remember. It's not anybody else's. One of the things I noticed when I when I wrote the first the first working class boy, yeah. I had to really lay lay it out clear. I had to make sure I didn't tell anybody else's story. I, I've got yeah. five siblings, yeah. and I didn't want to tell their story. I can only tell it from what I've seen, and that's the important thing when you're doing this. And so I just write it from my perspective, and if people don't like it, they get their own fucking book. <laughs> Are you allowed to say that under the two Absolutely. Say whatever you want. <laughs> I trust we you haven't read, got any bosses here. Yeah, you've read, good. you might have read a few of our articles. Actually, we... Um, I have. <laughs> I have. It was during the, uh, the plebiscite when Tony Abbott came out and said that we shouldn't be playing political music at, at the <laughs> NRL grand final with Macklemore and just the year before you <laughs> the year before you'd sung Kaysan. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Tony's the last person to get anything you know? Yeah. yeah. But really, I'm not sure of anything actually. Who are some of the authors that really inspired you to get into writing, you know, your own fiction? I haven't I've only just started writing fiction, you know. I, yeah. I like all sorts of you know you, you know, you've got like Stephen King and stuff like that, but, I, but I've been reading like Truman Capote and yeah. uh, Joan Didion and people like that. And I like I like that sort of, you know, I like fiction based on, on you know, based on facts. So, yeah. you know, I think a lot of the stuff I'm going to write is going to be sort of, you know, they, they all say you've got to write what you what you know. So I'm going to try, yeah. and, you know, I'll probably write some horror stories based on my own life, you know, because I've lived a few. <laughs> yeah. I've met a few, come to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you should mention before, it was Working Class Boy, was was one book you released and then followed up by Working Class Man. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of Working Class Boy kind of tells the story of of passage to Australia for your family. Yeah. And you were a youngster in Scotland. Yeah, I left Scotland when I was five. You have memories of the, the life and times? Really, it's ridiculous, really vivid. I actually, um, long before I started writing the book, I, I remember I, I said to my mum, I keep remembering this house and I drew pictures of this of this room, and I said, "Where is this? Where, where do you think there's this sort of layout? What sort of house was this? Where were we?" And she said, "You couldn't possibly remember it. You know, you you left there when you were ten months old or something like that." So I remember I remember real vividly, you know, lots of things. I can re I remember this room with a combustion stove and the and the bed sunk into the back. And she said it was a kitchen that we lived in in 1956. <laughs> so um, so it's which is you know considering yeah. I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. It's pretty yeah. cool. But I remember a lot in Scotland. There's a lot of, you know, real vivid memories. And a lot of it was pretty dark, you know, because it was, a, you know, Glasgow is a tough place. And within my family, there was a lot of violence and a lot, you know, like my dad was a, was a boxer and his dad was a fighter. And they were both like bouncers and standover men and all this sort of stuff. And so there was a lot of violence around where we came from. And, and so I've got very dark, you know, real, you know, I could taste the, 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 the place. So it just, it's really, really, yeah. you know, right on the right in front of me and every time i went back to scotland i get the same feeling i get this feeling of doom and gloom yep. and it wasn't until i wrote those books and i sort of let go of a lot of that shit that i go back to glasgow and it's still just as dark it's still just as dangerous <laughs> but uh but it, but i can I, I can actually sort of sit with the place now i, quite, I love it you know? yeah yeah we, we interviewed uh on, on the batuta advocate radio show about a year or so ago james rain and he was telling us yeah. about 
you know, the surf rock to the pub rock scene and, and you know, just, just the things that were going on around him while he was um, coming up as a musician. Yeah. And he referred to Adelaide and South Australia, the music coming out of there. He, I mean, I don't think this is a, you know, commonplace terminology, but he said, oh, you know, and he had all the 10-pound poms coming out of Adelaide. Was it yeah. like that? Did, I mean, and, and it's not just in oh, music. Oh, absolutely. Was absolutely, it like because Adelaide... Yeah, Adelaide, particularly Elizabeth, where where, where I grew up, yeah. there was a, all the immigrants were stuck there, yeah. and there was a lot of a lot of the bands. You see, the the, the reason that there was a lot of Adelaide bands, whether it's the Twilights in the early days, the Masters Apprentices, the Angels, Cold Chisel, a lot of the bands that came out of that stemmed from immigrants. You know, yeah. Steve and I and Chisel were both you know were both you know Brits. We'd hear, in, in, particularly in the sixties, I think bands used to hear music. The 10 pound tourists would come over, they'd all go to Elizabeth and they'd have the newest records in it. And yeah. it would take six months to get records to come to Australia right, right. Yeah. in those days. So bands like in in, in Adelaide were, were, were playing and playing these songs live and they were like way ahead of their time. So a lot of the bands had that really early British rock right. influence uh, and it sort of, and it permeated the whole thing. And so the whole Adelaide rock scene was really, it was really quite a you know prolific sort of scene. And people really, you know, there was a lot of great bands came out there, a lot of great musicians. So, and, that, so and, it, and the great, the great thing about Adelaide too, is the bands could play there. And because it was so far away from anywhere, really, you know, the Eastern States where the music scene sort of was happening, hmm. people, people wouldn't know about you. So you could go there, you could fuck up, you get yourself together, get the band yeah. so it was cooking, and then move to the Eastern States. Yeah, right. And, you know, you'd go there and they'd go, here's a new band and you'd be playing for five years. Right? Yeah, you're ready made, ready made. You're yeah, kind it was of... good. So Adelaide, you Adelaide just, tough... just the oven. Adelaide's the oven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was a t- they were a tough audience too. And, uh, and, you know, we played a couple of pubs in Adelaide, like a place called the Largs Pier, which I've spoken about a lot, which was as rough as guts, but a great rock and roll audience. If they yeah. if they liked you, they were going to, you know, they'll go through thick, you know, hell and high water for you. But if they if they didn't, they'd kill you. So you know you have to play good. <laughs> yeah, do you think um, any sort of young bands could have that same experience now, or is, or you know, it's there's a, real it's, life. A, it's a different experience now. You know, there's a lot of stuff that young bands have got going for them as far as you know being able to promote themselves online, get music anywhere in the world instantaneously. You know, like you can drop it, and if you can get through the right people. Whereas we didn't have that, and we just had to play night after night in pubs and clubs. You know, like. I think it's a tough thing for young bands to become great live bands because, you know, you, you hear about bands like DMAs, we are talking about them before. Right. You know, they're really good because they play a lot of live gigs. You know, you've got to play live to get to cut your teeth doing that. And that's yeah. what sort of, that was what the backbone of this whole Australian, they called it the pub rock scene, you know, whether it was yeah. the Oils, Angels, you know, Rose Tattoo, ACDC. We all cut our teeth playing to hostile audiences in, <laughs> yeah. in pubs with drunken drunken crowds. Yeah. And you had, to, you had to really get your shit together, otherwise they'd kill you. So, and it really made your bands really tight. There's definitely a flavor that Australian bands from the 60s, 70s and 80s sort of had, which sort of started to change when all the clubs shut down, you know, we were yeah. we used to play clubs that were the clubs that were, you know, licensed for 300 people and they'd have 2000 people in there, you know, yeah, yeah, it was a yeah. death trap, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, no. but, so I wouldn't advise it, but it, but it worked for the bands. It's interesting that you say that the crowds used to be hostile. I mean, like now when you go and see a rock and roll show, you know, you, you've obviously paid some good money for it and you, you want to go there and have a good time. Why do you think the crowds were so hostile back in the day? You know, especially well, in pub I rock. Just think there was a bit of a thing going where you know there was you know I know early in our careers people sort of thought that anything that came from overseas was better than what we had here. Yeah, it was a bit of a everybody had a bit of a chip on their shoulders and uh, and we'd go out of our ways to make sure that the, you know that they didn't leave with the same impression. I mean, and there's also you had to 
you'd have to play and part of the licensing laws in, in the in the 70s where they used to have to serve a meal you know yeah that's how they let people stay late so they'd serve a meal while you're playing and i'd be fucked if i was gonna let anybody eat while i was singing you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so i so you know it was hostile probably because i was hostile to them yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but they, but they were they were just tough crowds i mean they yeah they they knew what good music was and they, there was an abundance of good rock and roll bands in this country that were playing every night and if they didn't like you they'd walk out the door and go to another yeah. pub and see and see rose tattoo the, the pubs were full either way everywhere and, yeah everywhere so the, the pubs were packed yeah and and the bands were, and bands were getting you know you get out and you could play we used to play eight gigs a week you know yeah, it's yeah. outrageous you know? we used to hear that about you know well before um certain laws might have been invented uh in the way of uh <laughs> driving around town but yeah you'd hear those stories <laughs> whether that be in st kilda or bondi beach with five six gigs a night just loading up yeah yeah, yeah. I, absolutely we used to do a gig in melbourne for instance we'd do Melbourne was a there was a lot of pubs to play. We'd play a pub at lunchtime, you know, yeah. uh, and on Saturday we'd play a pub, pub at lunchtime. We'd do an early spot at seven thirty in a club supporting one of the big Melbourne bands, you know, Daddy Cool or something. And then we'd play at three o'clock in the morning in in a place called Bananas in St Kilda. And literally, you know, I'd I'd be really good in the first gig uh, at lunchtime. By the second one, I was getting a bit bleary-eyed and a bit out there. And by the third one, they'd carry me in, you know, never mind yeah. when we left the place. So, so it was pretty wild scene. It, it was yeah. good, you know. Yeah. I mean, you learn how to think on your feet, you know, and get by, you know, you could, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors. We could, if, there, if you couldn't sing anymore, you'd, you'd just trash the place yeah. and make, you know, put on a show. Well, um, earlier this year, Jimmy, I was in Belfast and we managed to, yeah. um, to catch a show by an American rapper called The Game. Uh, I, oh, I'm yeah. not sure yeah, if, if you've heard of him, but um, during the, the course of his performance, he consumed an entire bottle of vodka in one sitting. Um, he didn't yeah, come yeah, up. He didn't come up for Ed. Would you have any advice to him about you, you know like what he should be doing moving forward? I mean, I, I don't know how how hard it would be to perform a live show after you've just done that to yourself. Um, but I used to do it every night. Yeah, well, how? <laughs> how? I, mean. I, I don't know. You know, and I used to because I think the adrenaline kept you going. And, yeah. Uh, I, you know, pro probably you know assisted by some other chemicals and stuff yeah. like that. But you know, you just I wouldn't advise it. Put it that yeah. way. But I did it for years. I mean, I used to I used to drink a bottle of scotch and a bottle of Dram Beauty on stage. Uh, in a, you know, just during an hour and a quarter show, and I'd mix I'd mix you know yep. you know bloody you know what they call drinks in my in my mouth. It was just yep. full on. But but you can do it, you know. I just yeah. I've seen shows where people are just so wasted that that's sort of part of the entertainment. I remember yeah. I mean, I went and seen Iggy Pop in London. Yeah. Uh, we played Cold Chisel played at this club, uh, this this little theatre thing in London. The guys who were the stagehands said, "Come tomorrow night, Iggy Pop's playing." I yeah. said, "Oh yeah, I'd love to come." They said, "He's doing two shows. He's doing one at eight o'clock and one at midnight." come to the midnight one so i thought okay and, and I, I walked in and no kidding iggy was so wasted he was just trashed and i got there he just walked on stage and i'm looking at him you know he's not usual he's ripped yeah. and he's you know he's got the, the shirt off and he but he's cut from head to foot you know and i said what happened to him and apparently he was so out of it he was pacing around the dressing room and this bloke kept staring at him so he dived at him and it was a mirror Oh, oh, right. <laughs> it was it was it was awesome. He was just, he was just monumental. One of the best shows I've ever seen. But he was but at the same he was wasted, but he was just intense and, and on the money. Was it was fantastic. part of the performance. So somehow yeah. yeah, somehow somehow people managed to do it. I mean I you know, I really I wouldn't recommend it, but you know, you can do it. 
What do you? And oh, I don't know how big hip hop is in Belfast and in, in, in Dublin either. So well, there was yeah. uh, there was a lot of metal detectors a, at the door. Put yeah. it that way. It was a very intimate gig. It was yeah. Ulster Hall. Ulster Hall with metal polite? detectors. I've, I've played Ulster Hall. I played there many times. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the the whole? Um, touring aspect of it i mean you're still doing it to this day i mean uh covid covid pending we've done a couple live shows and you kind of do a bit more moving around as you'd know with book when you've released a book or something like that we did a stage show a year or so ago and we didn't do too many we did what six shows in in the space of a month that's eight yeah eight shows in the space of a month uh some back to back in different cities and even we felt you know the airport food and the booze was enough to yeah, slow it's us pretty, down. It's, it wears you. It wears you down. Uh, but I know you would have done way more than that. And I'm thinking, you know, how yeah. do you, how were you at, at, as a young man in your mid to late twenties? What would you do? How would you end something like that? Because I can imagine you were absolutely fucked after twenty shows in different countries oh. with a rider at the back every stage. Like, there's it, one thing to be fucked on stage, but to be rooted at the end of a tour. What would you do? We didn't even think about it, you know, because to tell yeah. you the truth, we would we would sort of finish a tour here, then go to New Zealand and do a tour, go to Europe <laughs> and do a tour, go to America and do a tour, and you'd finish in America and they say, oh, we booked you a new tour in Australia. So you come back and it was sort of, you know, just what you did. There must have been, you know, must have been 20 odd years where we just went back to back to back to back, you know, it was just nonstop. And you sort of, you get match fit. Yeah, you know yeah. that's the thing. Right. After it takes about it takes about eight shows, but you do yeah. get match fit, yeah. and that's that's being able to pick yourself up, you know. And uh, you know, a lot of that's like I said, is adrenaline, and a lot yeah. of it's got to do with just you know, you, you get out in front of a crowd, and you've got to put it on. Yeah, you can't get out there and not deliver. You know, yeah. that's otherwise you don't you don't have a job. You know, yeah. so you get up there, and the audience, you know, the energy of the crowd sort of drives you. Yeah. And once you get match fit, you get up there and it's just switch it on and bang, hit them hard. You know, hit them hard, hit them low. If they get up, hit them again. Yeah. yeah. With your books, you've kind of went from working class boy that kind of followed you through, you know, early days in Glasgow, then Adelaide, and then, um, yeah. you know, in, into music. And then working class man tells a story of you know the man, and of course you know the songs that came, including working class man. How do you deal with this thing that very few Australians would have where such a large part of the population, Australia, would feel like you wrote that song about them? Uh, or, or... I know. I know. You know, working class man, for instance. Yeah. I was, doing, I was doing an interview earlier on the radio, a big, big radio session, and they said to me, you know, you've written such iconic, iconic songs as when you when you wrote that line. Well, she loves you know a little woman, you know. And I guess I didn't yeah. write that song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Kane wrote that song. You know? Yeah. But it's it's a weird thing, you know. Just being like being in cultures, or for instance, you know, have, you know, being such a part of people's lives. It's really weird. People don't come up to me like you know gushing and, and screaming like I'm not Justin Bieber, you know. Yeah. But yeah. they but they come up and they they feel like they know me because yeah. I've grown up in front of them. Yeah. You know? yeah. I've, I've spent. 40 years, you know, playing at their bloody weddings, at their, you know, they play yeah. your records at their kids' funerals, at their yeah. bloody parties, at their 21st. Yeah. And so people come up to you and just, you know, they come up and say good day and just, you know, it's a weird feeling, but the people yeah. feel like they know you. And in a way they sort of do because yeah. what you do, you know, you lay it out there every night and and sometimes, you know, it gets, sometimes it gets annoying because you yeah. really, you know, they might know you too well or yeah. they or they um, get too familiar or you just, you know, you, you know, you go out for dinner with you. I go out yeah. for dinner with my wife and, it, you know, you're sitting having a romantic dinner and somebody comes up and say, oh, can I take a photo with to, you? And to the table. Oh, you're not happy. I'm not really happy. You're just saying, I know you hate this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, can you sign, can you sign my wife's ass? You know? Fuck. <laughs> 
<laughs> really, it's not good. It's not romantic. You know? yeah. no, but do you think it'll ever get old? Do you think you'll ever get tired of being, you know, everyone's kind of go-to? Uh, you know what? I, I get tired of it all the time, but I just, you know, I, I enjoy singing. And when it, you know, all the, all the, I, I, I try my best not to be a celebrity. You know, like yeah. there's a people who always want to be celebrity. Come on here and be on this show. and do. I'm a rock and roll singer. That's yeah. what I do. Yeah. Um, when people come up and act stupid, then I just say, you know, back off, you know, like I'm not bloody, like I said, it's not just a beaver. I'm not a celebrity. Yeah. I'm just a singer. Yeah. What do you want? If you want me saying something, I'll do it and get yeah. it out of my face, yeah, yeah. you know? You're but also not most, a role most model. People, <laughs> no, no, that's right, exactly right. People, but people sort of know that and they can tell, you know, once they go up close, they'll, they'll leave you alone. And I just enjoy singing. The, yeah. the, the point is every night I get up on stage, uh, you know, I don't regret, you know, being a singer ever. You know, I get up yeah. there and it just, it brings me joy. It makes, you know, it, you know, I get to, you know, exercise demons every night. I get, it's like, it's like primal therapy every night yeah. of the week. I, you know, I get to get, get in touch with, with feelings that most people don't get a chance to just yeah. by, you access them when you're singing. So I, I see it as a gift and I don't think it's ever really going to, you know, Get, get tired for me. Do you ever sit there? I mean, this is an interesting question, but you know, you would know the places you could go where you would be probably most loved. Do you ever feel like, do you ever get up, you know, maybe the missus is out of town, you think, I'm going to go be Jimmy Barnes tonight and walk in the front bar of the, you know, Bundanoon Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, 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 I've sort of avoided that. I've avoided that for a long time, you know, like sort of, but there is there's times when you go, when, you know, your mates have come up and said, oh, let's go for a beer. And you walk into the, the fucking Bondi Hotel and stuff. And yeah. you go, oh, why did I do this? You know, but, you know, like, like, but you know, you get, you get sort of, you get sort of smart enough not to do that. You know? I mean, yeah. I'm sure it'd be cool. It'd be cool in Batuta. I can walk in anytime. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. The other thing that's really annoying, this is one of the annoying things about, about being a celebrity. When people walk up to you and go, you're Jimmy Barnes, aren't you? I go, yeah, yeah. And they go, no, nah, you're not. No, nah, you're not. I go, no, I'm not. I'm not. Nah. Yeah, you are. Only he would say he is. And I go, fuck off. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Um, did you and the band foresee this working class icon status? I mean, as you said, you're rock and roll stars. You're not. You're not painters and dockers. Nah. But, but then, no, no you know, I think I think what it was I think what it was was from the early days, Cold Chisel. Once we put records out, you know, there was a lot of people that were making a lot of money out of, out of off of yeah. and roll bands and off, and off of punters. Yeah. And when Cold Chisel started, we were there was a, a, a booking agency called Dirty Pool that uh, mm-hmm. our management started along with the management of the Angels and the management of, of Ice House, and they, they formed this this management team. Who started doing door deals right, and stuff yeah. like that? So what we could do was instead of paying, you know, a hundred grand to the agent, you could you could and making five grand for the band or something, you could make twenty grand and you could drop the ticket price. The punters were looked after. So we just always had this thing about you know looking after after punters. Yeah, right. So people ask people used to ask us why we did it, and it was one it was, it was self preservation. We knew that if we looked after people who were coming to see us, they 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 keep coming back. But the other thing was I'd been a punter. I'd been a young punk in Adelaide just wanting to go to gigs and couldn't afford to get in and you know I'd have to kick doors in and shit like that. Mm-hmm. So we just we kept it so we kept our coaches will always kept the price of our merch down. We made, you know, when I went solo, I made, you know, working class man album just because I wanted to give something back, you know. Yeah. People, you know, people support you and, and and give you this lifestyle. And if you go out there and just and just milk it for all you can, 
you know, people don't like it. So, and they'd ask me why I did that. And I said, well, I, I was born, you know, in a working class family. That doesn't come out of you just because you made a bit of money. I, you know, this is burnt into my fucking veins. I remember every minute when we struggled. And you just try and keep that in mind and keep yourself grounded. And remember, you're only a singer, you know, that's all you're doing. And it's better if the punters are down there behind the, uh, <laughs> the soundies <laughs> rather than yeah. bowing you up in the pub. <laughs> exactly. I like it down when they're down there. I can see what they're up to. <laughs> Yeah. Now tell us, uh, what are you thinking musically? I mean, you've obviously spent a lot of time writing. How do you keep creative? You're looking fit, by, by the way. I, I just mentioned. yeah, I'm pretty fit at the moment. I'm good. So you, does yeah, that you all know, does that all play into itself? Uh, well, you know, I think the healthier you are, the, you know, especially I'm I'm 64. Yeah. You know, I, you know, so for me to be, I, you know, I still want to go out there. I, you know, I, I think that the best music I'm going to make is still to come. Yeah. I think that the, my I've still got a lot to do, and to do that, I've got to be fit. I've got to be, you know, I want to go up on stage and not go up there and and collapse in a heat. You know, I want yeah. to be, I want yeah. to be better than I've ever been every time I get up. Yeah. So I've got to keep doing it, and I found that the healthier I am, the clearer I am the more creative I am. Yeah. I used to think, you know, for years I did so many gigs wasted, yeah. uh, you know, and, and in fact, for a long time, you could have counted in on one hand the amount of gigs I did not wasted. So, I, and then and I got to the point where I thought I couldn't do a gig unless I was completely hammered. Yeah. And then when I finally started doing gigs sober and straight, it was like this revelation. I'm like, oh my God, I've been nobbling myself for 30 years, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I find I'm more creative. I've got more energy, more drive to, to work. And you know, just more. I've got, I've got more options of yeah. now. Uh, so you've got to. I think you've got to keep fairly healthy if you want to. If you want to last, yeah. uh, I, you know, I've got a lot of things I want to do. I've, at the moment, you know, I'm writing a solo record. I'm in the process of writing that. Yeah. I've got the book out now, the third book. I'm, I've got two different fictions that I'm starting to work on to write. Yeah. I've, I'm making a rockabilly record with Chris Cheney from The Living End and yeah. Slim Jim Phantom from The Stray Cats. And we're in the process of making an album with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. Right. So the idea is keep keep yourself busy, yeah. Keep moving forward and keep trying new things. Yeah. What are you doing? Are you on a bike? How are you, how are you keeping fit, or is that just the performing? No, part of it's performance. But I, I do Pilates. I, yeah. I get in the gym. You know, I used to do martial arts for years and stuff yeah. like that. And I, you know, I get up and kick and belt things and do all mm. that sort of shit. As I got older, I just find that you know all my joints are too sore from hitting things. So yep. so I do Pilates and I, and I've done yoga. I do I do anything to keep fit. Walk, you know, mm-hmm. swim, yep. uh, you know, any anything I can do. But uh, I think you just got to keep yourself active. Otherwise, you just you know you especially after the lifestyle I've led, you know, you'd, you'd be in a heap on the floor. Jimmy, just a few more questions before we go. Just um, back to killing time. There's a lot of different types of stories in here. I mean, like um. Mm-hmm. From everywhere, from up in Memphis all the, all the way down to a Coral Island, somewhere off the yeah. coast of Australia. Um, what um, process did you go through to come up with the stories that you were going to write for this book? You, you've lived of a very long and interesting life. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I've still got a lot of stories. I, I think oh, was, yeah. I just sat over the months leading up to, to writing. I, I remember I must write about this and I put it into my phone in a note in my phone. And uh, a lot of those I didn't get to because when I sat down and wrote, uh, other things would come to me. I tried to make this book a bunch of stories that weren't really related to each other. Yeah. But I found by the end of it that they all seem to be related in some way or another. And even stranger, I found that they all related to the other two books. So, yeah. uh, you know, the, I mean, life's got a way of, you know, when you're, when you're traveling along, just ignoring everything, uh, of putting big red flags up saying you should be doing this yeah. or you should see this and change this. And a lot of those markers I didn't see because I was so wasted. A lot of the stories, uh, I guess, it's still sort of sort of cathartic, therapeutic for me 
to write them because there was stuff, you know, I mean, I write, I wrote stories like there's a story in the book. It's called a curse on you. And I remember this, this day vividly in, I was in America. It was in the mid nineties. I was in America and I was really wasted at the time. And I was leaving the recording studio in a limousine and, yeah. and driving home. And I, and I wanted to get a bottle of vodka. Right. So I got the limo to pull into this little strip mall in Los Cienega. And I knew the bottle shop was there because I'd seen it ne right next door to it. There was this fortune teller shop, right? And the fortune tellers had the red velvet curtains yeah. and it had a crystal ball on a table with a, with a light on it. It looked like a set from the Munsters, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I, so I'd seen it, but I knew there was a bottle shop there. So that's where I stopped. And I remember the limo pulled in and I fell out of the limo. I looked like something, you know, that movie Arthur? It looked yeah. like that. And anyway, so I fell out and I, and I staggered in to the bottle shop. I thought there was two doors right next to each other. And I walked into the fortune teller by accident, right? Uh, I swear this is what happened. And as soon as I walked in, I shut the door and it all went sort of quiet and muffled in front of this red velvet curtains everywhere. There's candles burning them. I thought to myself, what a weird bloody bottle shop this is, you know? And this woman walks out from behind a curtain and she's in red silk robes and scarves tied around. She looked like the guitar player from Bruce Springsteen's band. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Steve, little Stephen, you know? Yeah, and I, yeah, I know yeah. Stephen. I know Stephen. I'm going, is that you, Steve? And, uh, and, she, and she came towards me and I realized what I'd done. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm in the wrong shop. And uh, she's going, I must talk to you. And I'm going, yeah, not now. i got to get out of here. I just wanted to get back to the, the bottle shop, you know? And she's going, there's a curse on you, Aunt Sen. Tell me something I don't know. You know? <laughs> oh, look at me. Look at the state I'm in. You know? <laughs> and I kept backing up and I got to the door and she said, someone very close to you is trying to kill you. And by that point, I'm going, thanks, but I got to go. And I backed out the door and then got the bottle of vodka and I forgot about it. Yeah. Right? I was sitting writing this book and that story came to me and I thought about it. It's one of those moments where there was a big flag. She was absolutely right. Somebody was trying to kill me and it was me. Yeah. You know? and I should yeah. have known because I was going at that state, I was still going to buy a bottle of vodka. Yeah. So, uh, so a lot of the stories are like that. They're sort of, they're, they're connected to, to either my growth or my self-destruction, yeah. you know, but yeah. depending when you look at it. Can you see any of these ending up on the screen or, or just any of your writing in general ending up on the screen? Can, uh, you, you know, like listen, who knows? I mean, I like the idea of that, but you know, mm. listen, I don't write them for that. I just write them. Mainly I write them to get them out and it's, yeah. it's entertaining. I write these things. Some of them I'll sit and write and I just have a laugh to myself, you know? Yeah. And then somebody goes, oh, that's really good. <laughs> My wife said, oh, you can't say that. <laughs> you know, there's a few things you have to edit because the other thing is, you know, you know, you write things and you go, oh, and this bloke was there and he's a fucking idiot, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you have to be very careful what you say about people and, and yeah. how you describe situations. <laughs> I've, been, I've been lucky enough I, you know, I just, I just write it for myself. And if, you know, if anybody likes it, they can do what they like with it. As long as they, you know, as long as they run it past my missus first. Yeah. That's it. You, you're talking about how much, how much of a fuck with this bloke is. She goes, just remember he's coming over for dinner next week. He's coming over for dinner. He's coming over for dinner next week. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and I've done it, I've done it, you know, cause uh, you know, you know, the people you meet, uh, you know, I've met, you know, some very funny, really great people. I've also met some absolute idiots, you know. Mm. Um, you know, I remember, I remember being like in Los Angeles, it was full of them, you know. You yeah. go there, and I remember being in a bar in Los Angeles, and this guy was, was this big rock star at the time who remained nameless, but uh, <laughs> but he, what's his name? I forget his because not mainly because I can't remember his name, but he wrote <laughs> this song called The Stroke, The Stroke, right? And he's just a fucking lunatic out there, you know. And he was, and he's trying to tell me how he was the best thing in rock and roll ever, you yeah. know. And, it, and he's had one song, and I think I ended up sort of 
carrying them out by their throat and put them outside <laughs> the bar and say, just stay there and keep yeah, out of my yeah, face. Yeah, or you'll, yeah. That'll be your last hit, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you just meet idiots all the time. You come across them and you just have to, you have to be able to recognize because a lot of people will bring something good to you. I've yeah, met yeah. some people who are horrible, who can write great songs. Yeah. I've met yeah. people who are, who you'd think would be complete assholes who are just geniuses and really, really cool. So you've got to keep an open mind and they try not to burn too many bridges when you're writing books. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is, this is something we can all enjoy thinking about in COVID because no one's going anywhere, but where would you say that yeah. your secret fans are outside of Australia? New Zealand, there was there's that. a lot in Scotland. Yeah, a lot of Scotland. Mm. A lot in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, New Zealand is a big, big part of us. You know, we yeah. we toured. I started touring New Zealand in about 1975 with yeah. Cold Chisel. Yeah, uh, and you know, we've been going back there regular ever since. Sort of different crowd to Australia, but they do love they love rock and roll. They love the blues. You played stuff, with so played with Bruce music. there the other day, didn't you? Yeah, we played with Bruce on his last tour there. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was really awesome. I played there heaps. Yeah. I love I love New Zealand, but you know Germany. Yep. Germany, yeah. Germany, they they love rock and roll in Germany. You know, we go there, Sweden, Poland, uh, a little bit in France, America. You know, America people people know who I am. They're not sure why, <laughs> yeah. but they know to be afraid. They know enough to be afraid. Uh, you know, um, but you know, they've sort of cult following there. But Europe is probably where Cold Chisel and myself sort of sold more records outside of Australia. Yeah. You know, yeah. a little bit, a little bit, a little bit in America, but more, more Europe. Germany particularly, which is the second biggest rock and roll market in the world, you know, and they really? they do they have those mega festivals in Germany, yeah. just you know, three hundred thousand people plus, you know, really outrageous festivals. I suppose your career would have been really starting to lift as they were opening up too, um, in Germany. You know, they would have. Um... You know the wall oh, comes yeah. down, and you guys were you guys. Oh, were but we were going there, yeah, and we we actually went and played in places like Leipzig, Leipzig, or whatever it's called, you know, mm. which was on the other side of the wall. And you go into these places, and they're dull and grey, and you know, you can really see they've been worn down by you know by communism and bloody and the weather, yeah. and there was nothing going on. And you get up and play, and the audience was just go nuts, yeah, because they've been suppressed, you know, oppressed the whole time, you know. Yeah. So suddenly they can get free and, and really cut loose. So I mean, it's it's good to see that change in the place. But at the same time, I've done I've done gigs and I've done gigs in, in Germany where you know you're sort of you know are these guys like you know white supremacists or something you know like really you know play you're playing with sort of heavy metal bands and you go I think they're the wrong audience for me you know yeah <laughs> so you just you, but they're just it's a big country there's all sorts of people there and they and they just love to rock you know yeah. so you get out there and just play your music but Scotland they love me because I'm you know I was born in Glasgow. And you go back there, and the, and the Scots love every any any Scotsman who's who's done well somewhere else. They really love it. So, yeah, yeah. so they sort of adopted me back again. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were born there, so they can claim it. But I'm sure I'm sure they'd have you even yeah, if you yeah. weren't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they like rock and roll there too. Though. I mean, they're not. They've got that. They do. They 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 like you know. Well, we like it here too in Batuta. Uh, Jimmy, we and we and we well, love you, Roger. Invite me up, I'll come and sing. All right. Yeah, I'll we'll get come you. And sing in, yeah. the, in the local club. Yeah. On the way out, or have you got a club? Well, yeah, we do. We've got heaps, but um, I suppose you know the, the next opportunity would be the uh, the big red bash next year if you want to. That'd be good. I've done that. That's really come good. out again. Yeah, I'll yeah, play, yeah. I love yeah, it, we'll, mate. I played there a couple of times. That's a good spot out there with the big sand dune. Yeah, we're yep. we're two and a half hours on the most unsealed road in Australia from there. So um, well, that's great. It's going to be good country there. <laughs> yeah, mm. it's good. It's good, and the Batuta Hotel's <laughs> back up and running again too. So we'll um, we'll right. keep in touch. But for for the meanwhile, we'll be reading your book, Killing Time, by Jimmy Barnes. All the best, guys. Nice to talk to you. You too. Thanks, Thanks. for joining us, mate. <laughs>